This is an ultimate global podcast. Hello, and welcome to our special weekly podcast on trending international and social affairs. You're listening to Saurabh Kora and George Mavros from Sydney. Well, welcome to another exciting episode of the Ultimate Global Podcast. And um, this is a special series of episodes that we are doing on jobs and workplaces. Um, we have been we have already done, I think, two episodes uh, in this series, and I think this is going to be the third one. Um, and uh, this is, in fact, based on one of the books uh, that we are talking about here. The name of the book is Beyond Agile, um, How to Run Faster, Smarter, and Less Wasteful Projects. And we've got the co-authors of that book, Paul Scott and Andrew Walker, joining us for this uh, episode. So just to give a brief that this book is the story of a company that's called Three Weeks, but it is also the story of a few people who are trying to effect change in the way we create products without reinventing the wheel. Now, um, I'm sure that Paul and Andrew uh, will be in a better situation to describe about this topic and this book. Uh, but before that, if you can just describe yourself uh, and introduce yourself, Paul and Andrew, um, that's what we do with each of our guests. So uh, go on with your one minute introduction and your timer starts now. Andrew. Andrew, <laughs> it's your turn. Uh, I think on you're on mute, Andrew. That's even better. Uh, <laughs> Genius yeah. introductions and minimalist. So I'm a career technical project manager. The last 25 years have been in web and mobile, which started in 97. A big chunk of that was uh, project rescue. So like Walmart home shopping, Sony's distribution systems around Europe, a uh, big till system for one of the biggest retailers in the UK. So just picking up other people's mess and trying to fix it. And then more recently uh, with Paul, <coughs> business that we built, sold, uh, I think we sold it in 2018. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm going to say that it was created out of desperation because the work we were getting from the rest of the market was uh, not autonomy, not purpose, and not mastery. Does that make sense? Using Dan, Dan Pink's words. Um, yeah, and you know, I think Paul and I are both moving on doing very similar things now. I, I'm co-founder of a company called Thunder Labs, which is now picking up the same methodology and um, separately also branding that methodology, which is now called Spartan Method. It's me. Wonderful, uh, Andrew. And uh, <clears throat> can take over. Yeah, sure. So thank you, Sarab, and thank you, George, for uh, having us on the, the podcast. Um, Andrew and I, uh, our story goes back to 2001, I think, Andrew, mm -hmm. uh, when we were working together in London um, for a contract project management firm, working on a, uh, some business with British Telecom and uh, in the obviously in the sort of early days of e-commerce. And um, I, I was the uh, sort of customer experience project manager guy that used to drive Andrew wild because um, I would be slowing down the project when he wanted to speed it up. Um, anyway, 
roll forward uh, 15 years and uh, or 14 years and we met up in Sydney in 2015, in October 2015. Uh, I was working with Dimension Data then. I'd been working with them for over 10 years in a um, customer experience practice, setting up customer service operations all around the world. And um, over a slightly drunken lunch, Andrew said to me, you could be my CEO. And I said, I have absolutely no idea why you think that, Andrew. I've never been one. Um, but um, we, uh, we, after a period of about three months, we, uh, we agreed it would be a good idea for me to try it out. So I came to Sydney and spent two weeks with Andrew and his team in three weeks, meeting the team, meeting customers, learning about the method they were using, and I was just blown away by what was happening with, uh, with their customers and the impact they were having with this very fundamentalist form of agile um, and decided to give it a go. So I handed in my notice at Dimension Data. I sold my apartment. I said goodbye to my kids. I sold my prized possession, a Jaguar XJR, <laughs> and um, jumped on a plane and came to, to Sydney. So we started working together on the, the 9th of 15th of March, 2016. And as Andrew said, two years later, we sold the business um, for uh, an exorbitant sum of money. And uh, we then spent um, an interesting year with the acquiring company, um, which really resulted in both of us having a bit of an epiphany and realizing that actually we'd be better off doing our own thing again. So we went off in slightly different directions at that point. Um, uh, as you know, Sarab, I, I ended up after uh, a couple of consulting assignments working with David Cleland at Evergreen Digital um, and have had a wonderful couple of years working there with him. Uh, we sold the business to LMS365 in September last year, and I'm now general manager of, uh, of that business in Australia and New Zealand, and very happy to be here. Well, thank you so much, Paul and Andrew, for that exciting introduction. The two fancy terms that businesses had heard in 2020, I thought were COVID-19 and Agile. But here comes a book where they're talking about Beyond Agile. And when I studied about this concept of three, three weeks methodology, it said, define our contract in terms of business outcomes not functional scope that's step number one then it said implement the solution gradually right from the beginning of the project and then it said work with the users and <clears throat> their needs not the businesses i'll i'll leave that up to you um andrew or paul um to describe that in detail what do you mean by that those three steps do you want to break it down for us or explain that overall. I'll give it a go. Yeah, um, you better, Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> so it, what's interesting about Agile, so when we say Agile today, what we really mean is Scrum. So what everyone is doing is Scrum, which is only actually one quarter of what is available today in the world. So let's just talk about Scrum. Um, uh, the idea of um, running a Scrum project is a little bit... Um, Worrying to many business people. They say, if I'm going to do agile scrum, uh, then I'm basically giving up any form of governance. 
Okay. The, the big criticism. So, you know, in IT, we love, we love Scrum. It's fantastic. We just get to chat. You know, we get to stand up every morning. We get to talk about chickens, pigs, all sorts of ceremonies that are related to Scrum. Um, if you ask the question to a business person, is IT any quicker as a result of Scrum? They will generally, of course, agile. Um, I can introduce you to at least a dozen executives. The only dozen executives that I know would all say, no. No faster. And the reason it's no faster is we're still governing agile projects as if they were traditional projects. And really three weeks came up with a way of breaking that mold. Um, so someone might say to me, I want to replace the onboarding system for my company. I'm not, we would say, well, that's not really a goal. That's not really a business outcome. The goal of that replacement is to reduce the amount of time it takes to onboard a customer or onboard the same number of customers with fewer employees. That's what we mean by outcomes. So we figured out a way to not spend a whole bunch of time writing documents to try and govern an agile project, uh, but to find another way that you could govern the project because you could run a pilot, or you could run a project for 18 months, and you could say, have we? reduce the amount of time it takes to onboard a customer? Or have we reduced, have we increased the number of customers we can onboard with the same number of people? It's such a simple idea. I'm not sure, well, I am sure why it's not popular, but um, it's extremely effective because what a lot of people who have come from, an, you know, from a, a non-startup background probably don't appreciate is that big corporates spend I'm trying to get my screen right. Yeah. Spend that much time um, uh, before the project starts, and then they spend just a little bit of time in the project. A lot of people don't appreciate how much time is wasted before the project starts. So really what we're about is an alternative governance model, right? How do we govern an agile project? And once you do that, you then take some chains off. Um, there's a great, there's a great um, graphic on SpartanMethod.com. If you just scroll down below the fold, there's two Centurion uh, gladiators and they're in chains and they're like, you know, maybe instead of doing more agile training, we could just take the chains off. Would that be a good idea? <laughs> and that's really what we were about. We were about finding a way to take the chains off a team, but still give the executives a way of saying, are you delivering what we need you to do? Instead of using as much documents to do that, we just use a metric. Hopefully that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. And I think uh, that's that's also the kind of structure which a lot of organizations are feeling more popular. Now, one thing that I can really link here is um, nowadays, the hierarchical structure is not somewhat which is popular, isn't it? They want it to be more hybrid structure where there is no hierarchy being followed in an organization. Um, which was also kind of taking a lot of time in some of the cases. Isn't it, Paul? Yeah, I think um, just following on from what Andrew was saying as well, I mean, if you go back to the uh, original Agile Manifesto from 2003, I think it was, you know, there were four core values in that um, that the group of people who came up with, uh, with Agile we're trying to get people to understand, you know, the first was to focus on, on interactions, not processes. You know, you, you get bound up thinking about processes and it basically just extends the time it takes before you start doing something. Um, you know, start by 
creating working software and everything about three weeks was about delivering and the method which is is now part of uh, what Andrew's doing the method was all about getting a bit of software working in front of a user within a matter of hours rather than days and weeks um, for, and focusing on on customers on end users not not letting uh, you know, analysts, security people, project managers, um, product managers get in the way, engage with the people who are going to be using the tool or the product that you're trying to create from day one and throughout the period of the project, and you will remove a lot of the miscommunication. That's it. We've lost Paul. That goes on. Pardon me. You just broke. Can up. you hear me? Oh, sorry. Um, you know, responding to change, not getting stuck in a plan, um, and you know, putting aside the, the need to have a, a project plan broken into a thousand tasks before you can actually start doing the project. So one 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 of the things that kind of typified the way that we work, the way that I'm sure Andrew's moving forward is that the commissioning of a project usually started with a 60 to 90 minute session with the end users to determine what outcomes they were trying to achieve with, with the business owner. Um, and then using that information, break it down to the first thing that we were going to deliver within a period of hours. Oh, absolutely. Um, by the way, your internet was fluctuating a lot, Paul, in between. That's fine. We, we got... Do you want me to, got, to just turn my camera off? Yeah, we got the gist of what you were saying, but uh, okay. that's fine. You can just keep your camera turned on because we want to see your camera. <laughs> we okay. want you to be in the camera. He might not be George Clooney, but he's still good looking enough to have his camera on. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, think we should have, I think we should have the camera on. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. I pass on Thank to you, George. George. I'll pass on to you, George, for any questions. Yeah, um, so for people watching this, why is this any different to what's been happening before except you've just put the urgency of three weeks into it, question one? And question two, a lot of people would say, why three weeks? Why not two? Why not four? How did you come up with this um, goal of three? <laughs> Off you go, Good Andrew. Question. I like it. Um, I'll take this one, Paul. We'll tag it. Um, so why is it different? Um, a waterfall project, so, you know, a traditional project, um, will be months before it has its first release, and its first release will always, in almost all situations, be its last release. They do the release at the end of the project. So if you've got a 12-month project, you in production at the end. You do, you, do, you do Agile in the middle, actually, if you want. It's fantastic, but it doesn't change when humans um, receive the product. Um, and all humans receive the product at the same time, which is very risky, right? It's like, that's why we spend so much time making sure we haven't made a mistake, because, yes. you know, I've got one and a half thousand agents bringing students into my university. I don't want to release a product to one and a half thousand agents all at once, right? Or if I do, I want to make sure that I've got it perfect. Right? Um, so... Uh, and, and the reality is with Agile, for the reasons I was describing earlier on, 
the same thing happens. Um, Paul mentioned the Agile Manifesto, which very clearly states that it's about working software. In 99% of Agile implementations, that's interpreted as meaning working software in test. Okay, so I, you know, I've worked with um, two of the uh, two of the signatories on the Agile Manifesto, and I can guarantee you that's not what they meant. What they meant was working software in production, in use by real humans. So, Agile and Waterfall, primarily because they're both governed the same way, failed to deliver any earlier software in production than anything else. So, the Spartan method three weeks method, build agile method, whatever you call it, is all about, I start an 18 month program with a live release in let's say less than a month. And the answer to your second question is, doesn't matter. If it's two weeks, three weeks or four weeks, I don't care as long as it's not three months, six months, 12 months. In fact, I'm simplifying it down for uh, Thunder Labs, we just say in the first month, because the difference between three weeks and a month is irrelevant for a $3 million program. And it's easier to say one month than it is to say three weeks. <laughs> I don't know if it's got any less syllables, but <laughs> hopefully that answered your questions. Thank you. So um, with, with your approach, What's the hardest thing, do you think, for um, people to take on board when you, when you say, I know you've been doing that, but this is how we're going to do it. What, what do you think is the biggest, <laughs> the biggest hurdle to overcome? Is it, oh, Can we've never done this before, which is one of the world's greatest <laughs> reasons. I mean, why we still don't have concrete wheels on our, on our cars? Because somebody should have just said, we've always done that. Yes. So let me let me ask that one first, because um, my, my observation would be um, <clears throat> when when we when we went into um, established IT environments um, and one of the case studies in the book is um, News Call. Um, the biggest single problem we faced was a cultural one, which was the IT department had a set way of doing things. They were doing what they perceived was agile. And they were, you know, they were a big team. Um, and we came in and we said, yeah, it's not quite agile. You know, if you go back to first principles, this is what it actually looks like. So it was very, very challenging to get that kind of um, cultural mindset right. Um, and I don't think, and you can correct me on this, Andrew, I don't think we ever managed to convert an entire IT department to work this way. I think what we succeeded in doing was demonstrating to established IT departments, if they wanted to do stuff using our method, they needed to put a, a, a sort of a force field around the team to protect them from the rest of the organization because otherwise it's uh, two things happen. Um, standards and practices get diluted and the team that are there to do this kind of agile development 
find themselves getting dragged into stuff which is nothing to do with what they've been brought in to do. So, so my observation would be the biggest single challenge we faced was a cultural one. Yeah, and I would say that the culture was um, the culture of starting small has been lost in IT. Mm. Uh, you know, like in every other profession back in the 80s and 90s, people would run pilots, they would run tests, they would give it a go on a small scale and, and they would just use their logic to go, how do I not give this to every agent in the university or how do I not expose every student to this? Mm. And what happens just because of our fear in IT of failure and I actually think it's a cultural thing like what Paul's saying. It's, um, it's because of the management styles that have emerged in the 90s and 2000s and 80s um, where you make a single mistake and you're to death for it. So people don't want to make mistakes, right? We talk about it. Like we watch the TED Talks and we think, hey, great, we can all make mistakes. But when you make a mistake in a big corporate, it's not going to end well for you. So there's this hysteria, there's this, um, this fear of doing things on a small scale. Um, even when we prepare people for it, even when people sign up to it, the first time they see it, it's just weird, right? You, know, you, you imagine deploying a solution that has, uh, it doesn't have a user admin screen, doesn't have a, a reference data admin screen. Imagine those things are happening behind the scenes by developer. Imagine we're not going live to every agent, which means we can't do every course, which means we probably can't take credit cards, which means we can't do, it's all that, it's that idea. Right? And then as soon as you have that conversation with architects, business analysts, anyone who's involved traditionally in delivering IT, they want to say, oh, we can't do that without this. Can't do it. So this is the cultural thing Paul was talking about. I can't do this unless we have this, and we can't do that unless we have that. And then you just back into, you've got to build everything at once. It's just this, fear-driven, uh, very reasonable, by the way. I'm not, I'm not suggesting this is an unreasonable way of thinking <clears throat> where we are in IT at the moment. It's like, it's got to be all at once is a really hard culture to break. But what are some of the ways? I was just thinking uh, on that conversation, Andrew. So do you think there are some ways through which you can kind of change the way the management thinks or the architects think um, is there a way you can kind of shape the local cultures when you are kind of communicating this idea to them? Yes. So, you know, we, we, we were a company that generally didn't help companies do this stuff. We actually asked everyone inside our company, do you want to help other people do it? And we tried it a couple of times and they were like, no, let's not do that again. It's really hard. Um, let's just carry on kicking goals because they love kicking goals, right? Um, mm. So, but, but I guess the point I'm making is we were ground up. We didn't start at the CIO and work down. We, were, we started with someone, like quite often business people, but sometimes someone in the CIO. And we would deliver a project. So my answer is absolutely, you can start to do this on a small scale. And the reason that's exciting is because, you know, don't get distracted by another thought, but... The reason it's exciting is you can create a huge amount of momentum if you do one project this way. The business customer will rip your arm off to do a second one, a third one, a fourth one, a fifth one, a sixth one. Once they've done it once, which is weird for all the reasons we just... So it's not just technical people who struggle, by the way, when we're talking about culture. It's also mm -hmm. business people. 
It's like, oh, this, this thing you've given me isn't finished. It's like, no, yeah, we talked about this before we started. It's only going to do a very small amount. We're not promising to build you an 18-month program in three weeks or a month, right? But once they've done it once, <clears throat> it's huge uh, demand. And it's a wonderful thing to see people wanting you to do another project instead of, you know, don't annoy me with this other project of yours. Um, so I guess my answer is leading by example and delivering a solution where they failed to deliver one successfully before is in itself a great way to encourage people to do it more. And it, what, we, what you see is it tends to gain momentum. Um, thank you so much for that answer. You had any follow-up question on that, George? I'm just going to make a couple of comments. Um, what I'm hearing, Sarab, is something that I've spoken to you about probably from the first time I met you. What I'm hearing is all of the other stuff just doesn't happen unless you get the mindset right. And, mm. and um, um, Andrew, Paul, like one of my um, sayings is that your hands can only create what your mind can see. And so if people see that we've got a six-month program, by crikey, we won't finish a day earlier because that's what we're working towards. Um, yes. I'm, I'm 67, and when I was 32, I took over as MD of the um, New South Wales operation for Artline, and we we're in the process of putting in a computer program. And to, to give you an idea how archaic that was, we had a two 900 megabyte hard drive computer in that state. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Yeah, insane, insane. And it cost $25,000. Unbelievable. Whoa. Anyway, I took over, and part of me taking over as MD, I wanted my damn warehouse system up and running, which had been taking months and months and months. And I was told that it was going to take another four months. And I, I won't mention the actual companies, but they're very well-known computer people, very well-known software people, very well-known everything. I got them all around the table and I said to my general manager, I'm going to be the mongrel. So I came in and I said, this program's going to be up in two months. All I want to know from you guys, who's going to join me so that if it doesn't, I'm going to sue the others. Everybody decided they were going to join me. We delivered it in two months. Because, and I, I, I can't really share with people some of the language I used in that meeting. I walked out, they all said... <laughs> They all said, Jesus, that bloke's a mongrel. Oh, he said, yes, he is. He said, he's terrible. He's terrible. Um, but, but it was just, it's that shifting of mindset, isn't it? And, and if, you don't get, if you don't get management to shift, you've got no hope of the others following. Yeah? It's, no. It's, and, and, I mean, every, every we, we did over 200 projects together in, in just over two years. Every wow. single one was the result of there being somebody in the leadership team or in a senior position in these organizations who was prepared to take a risk. They were doing something that had never been done before. Um, and they, it, it was a risky decision from, from their perspective. You know, their peers were looking at them saying, are you sure? This doesn't make any sense. And, you know, that all of, I mean, all of our projects ended up with a, with an outcome that we, uh, would have documented at the beginning. So they were successful, but it was a massive risk for a lot of these guys who were either career IT or career business people. 
And I would say not a risk, not a risk in the traditional sense of project risk, just a reputational no. risk because they were it's doing some additional risk. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, if either of you two, and I'm sure you probably have, if you've worked with a government and in particular local government, the first question is, is my butt covered? The second question is, is my butt covered? The third question is, if it's not, <clears throat> who do I blame? Right. Now, <laughs> <laughs> I, yes. I consulted to a couple of uh, councils for five and six years. Oh, my gosh. It's just yes. insane. It's challenging. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then you find that champion and he's the one that's, or she, he or she is the one that actually, they see it, bring the rest with you. Totally. Um, and we've got a catalogue of projects that fit that um, description. Yeah. I think for me, the biggest uh, sign that we were succeeding was that we had, you know, our lead client that did 70 projects with us, our second biggest client did 50, you know, like, that's a lot of projects. Yeah. <laughs> you don't, and, and they're the two clients that we actually first experimented with trying to get their teams to do this. And it amazes me that it actually worked for as long as it did. Because we, we with both organizations, we went in saying, look, this is an experiment. You know, I'm not 100% convinced it'll work. But, uh, you know, we, we were at the two-year mark before they had the first bit of turnover in that team, which was pretty impressive, I think. Um, mm. But expected because the organization changed around them and they took away some of the, the autonomy that they should have had. They started lumping on, you know, additional responsibilities, giving them part-time gigs. These are all the things that you don't do if you're in a Spartan team. Mm. Um, and then they lost the will to live, you know. So, <laughs> so, so for those people watching this that are not necessarily in the IT development and they're not the techos, What's the benefit of them reading the book? Do, is, is there transferable skill? Is there transferable knowledge? Is there transferable, um, you know, if you teach me how to do one and one, I can decide whether it's elephants or bananas. Um, yeah. Is, is there, so, or or do, do I get lost if I, can't, if I can't do dots, dashes? Great question, George. And um, I certainly, speaking personally, and I don't know whether Andrew agrees with this, but... The motivation for us in writing the book, or for me personally, was to debunk some of the, um, the, the misunderstood aspects of Agile um, and to try and provide people with um, the tools to think about how they can apply that approach to all areas of business. Because I think we come across Agile in every aspect of, uh, of our operation. It's not just IT. It's, it can be in HR. It could be in, in production. Um, it can be in sales. It can be, you know, lots of different functions are trying to adopt an Agile approach. But I think what we were trying to do with the book was to say, look, besides giving people the kind of um, story of how we ended up with something called Agile and then it didn't quite work. Um, but, you know, the, um, the epiphany and the kind of the reveal, if you like, was actually there is a way it can work and here's the way it could work. Um, that was obviously aimed at our IT savvy audience, but, but the way we've described it, I believe, makes it much more accessible to people to, to help them understand how they can adopt 
these simple principles in every aspect of business. And just to kind of highlight what I mean by that, going back to those four fundamentals of uh, the four values of, of the manifesto, that, that for me typified how something that should be complex can be made simple. And if you're prepared to take the risk of adopting a more simplistic approach to solving problems, you'll actually be surprised at some of the outcomes you can produce. Because that, that Agile manifesto was all about deconstructing a very complex process that was rooted in technology going all the way back to the 1950s and saying, surely, surely technology has moved on since the 1950s. You know, the assumptions that were built into coming up with a waterfall approach to software development are profoundly aged. They cannot possibly be, be true in the digital era that those things are still true. So um, I, I think that's what we were trying to do with the book was to, to give people access to the core principles of Agile and ask the question, how could you apply that in your work, in the role that you've got, in the business you're in, in the function that you're fulfilling? Because, it, you know, things have moved forward and let's see how you can apply that stuff to what you do. I think it's... Um... I, I would give credit to Dan Pink for helping my thinking coagulate more clearly since three weeks. So, you know, we obviously, we move on, we think, we look back and we go, ah, you have some, you know, you have some light bulb moments from the past that you probably didn't realise at the time. And certainly there's a lot of that in three weeks for me. 90% of it was just, we had an idea, the idea stayed the same all the way through and it was amazing. It wasn't easy to try and sell work that way. It was sort of, um, that was a challenge. But delivering the work that way was was extremely reliable. Um, and I didn't really realize until, you know, years later after Dan Pink had done his uh, purpose, was it autonomy purpose mastery um, video, that I realized that really it's that basic theme that we were applying to IT. Okay, mm -hmm. so we were, we're saying what has to happen today in my case, it, it was create a new company. But what has to happen today to give the power to the people? In my case, it was IT people. I think you can apply the same thinking. And it's basically the same idea. And all I did was logically deconstruct all of the things that stood in the way of an IT person having autonomy to deliver the thing that we asked them to. And ironically, that had to start with me asking them to do the thing in a different way. But it also meant we had to take a whole bunch of things out of their way to get the job done. Now, that basic idea is a really simple idea and actually conceptually is not hard to get your head around. If you just ask enough questions and just approach it logically, you'll come up with the same conclusion we did. Data governance. How do I do data governance without the data governance team getting in my way? There's a way. <laughs> think about it for 10 minutes, you'll figure it out. And I think that is where it goes cross domain. Um, IT becomes irrelevant is a team full of happy people is so much more fun. And the only way to get happy people is to give them autonomy. The only way to give them autonomy is to change what you're doing. And that's where we end. So in the first episode of uh, Jobs and Workplaces, I had invited a podcaster from Sydney. His name was Simon Banks. 
we talked on the topic of curiosity and creativity um, driving innovation at workplace. Um, and I think that's that topic is also pretty much linked to what we are discussing right now, isn't it? Because if you are creative enough to do things and think differently, um, you will be happy to accept the idea that a project which can be uh, done in six months can also be done in two months, can also be done in a month. If the, if the way you think changes or if the way you are doing the things kind of is done more creatively, isn't it, Paul? Well, yeah, look, I, I, I think um, that, that's, that's, that's true, um, Sarah, but, but I think what we, what we proved with um, the method that, uh, the Spartan method, which is what it's now called, um, is that um, if you can demonstrate to, to the problem owner that there is a, a simple way to solve the problem once, um, from end to end without necessarily having all of the mechanics in place to complete a process. If you could do that once in a digital form, then it's quite possible to do that several times. And what I mean by that is the, um, the case study in the book is, one of the case studies is, is a news call. And the problem that they were trying to fix was moving their classified advertising online because all of their 150 odd publications at the time took classified advertising over the phone in call centers and it was a very lengthy inefficient process and probably wasn't making an awful lot of money um, so the ask and they've been trying to do it several times was to digitize that process and get it online and they started the project, what was it, Andrew, twice, I think, with big consulting firms. And on both occasions, it hit the buffers when they got to the requirements gathering stage because that's as far as it got. You know, the, the board were presented with a, um, the cost of implementing this phenomenally complex system and just said, no, you're going to have to come up with a better idea. Um, and even then, you know, they spent probably millions of dollars on, on requirements gathering and, and initial design work. So we were given the opportunity to try a different approach. And our, our approach was taking the three weeks method, which just said, give us one user, give us one advertisement, give us one publication, and we will basically build end-to-end -end that process digitally using human APIs in between to, to um, fill in the gaps um, to demonstrate that it can be done. And having done it once, then do it a gazillion times, whatever the, the number was. But we, what we succeeded in doing with our, with our pilot was to demonstrate it could be done without having to gather requirements for 154 publications and you know, literally millions of different versions of ads that could appear in these publications. And that, that product is still being used today. It's called News Ads, and it's online. So it, it's, it stood the test of time. It went live in 2017, 2018, um, and it's still being used. And it basically dispelled the myth that in order to deliver a really complex solution in digital form 
you were going to have to take years to do it. You were going to have to involve an army of people to gather requirements and do the initial design work. And then you would have to go through a very long and complex process to actually deliver the solution. So we kind of proved that by taking a risk and taking a more innovative approach, it is possible to deconstruct some of these intangible big problems. I would, um, I'd add to that that the, so, you know, the, the, the question Shrub was around, you know, curiosity and I will say creativity and curiosity. I, th I actually think that all humans are curious and creative. I think what happens though in corporate, and this is where context matters, right? You know, Paul and I always come from the perspective of digital number one and corporate number two, because that's, that's the life we've led. The, the issue in those environments is that that's been beaten out of you. Mm. So yes, of course we believe in those things. I fundamentally believe in those things. Um, the basic idea that created the success for the telephone base. So imagine you're trying to put a physical advertisement in a paper, like, you know, like it's got a square box around it. It's got some text and it's bold and it's got a picture in it and whatever. And you're trying to explain that to someone over the phone. Right? Oh, hi, you know, I want to be on the left-hand side at the top. I want it to be this. Oh, and they, and they like, you, you're just running blind. You're on the telephone. <laughs> and that was how, that's how all ads were taken in the classifieds. Now, I guarantee you that someone had been curious, that someone had been creative and went, I wonder what it'd be like if you just had like, because everyone's got a mobile phone now. You know, we're in 2014 or whatever it was when the project started. Everyone's got a mobile phone. How would it be if we just could see it being built on our phone? Now that idea, that curiosity, that, 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 that creativity had happened before. All that we did with the Spartan method was to create an environment where you could water that and it would grow. Because in a normal corporate environment, basically there was a flamethrower, you know, your idea came up, gone. Yep. Hysteria and fear basically killed that idea. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and that idea was live in less than four weeks, right? Yeah. Again, as Paul says, because we didn't have to risk giving it to everyone because, you know, that's risky. We just found a way to let it grow into a little seedling, you know, and, and, and then it grew from a seedling to a little thing, and then it grew into a big tree, and then eventually that was the whole thing. It's the environment that allows... So I'm, I'm saying absolutely I agree with the idea that curiosity and creativity should be nurtured. I just think in 99% of corporate environments, back to our first comment about culture, <laughs> that's not what happens. Fear and hysteria kill ideas if they're going to be on a small scale. Um, and, and I don't blame anyone for it. It's just the, the way that IT has happened, you know, the way that um, the way that we've grown up, the way that the corporate environment has evolved. It's the way, the way it is. But I do think we can fix it. Yep. Um, might be interesting to know, Andrew, um, so what is the vision now of moving forward? Uh, so you have told us about what you have done with the book till now and what kind of companies you have chatted with. But have you both kind of uh, interacted and are, are in a vision to kind of talk to more companies in the near future, spread this message? Because I know still companies are pretty confused with what's agile and you're bringing in a new concept. Uh, how you know that's going to be a challenge for you when you talk to those people as you just said before that 
um, they're not going to be ready to listen to you or kind of understand what you are saying, isn't it? Yeah, my goal... So we used to, if you think about it as fishing versus helping people to fish, you know, yeah. is, is, is the doing versus the teaching. I'm very much shifted into, I want to push back into the community. We, we had this apprenticeship idea, which is taking kids out of high school and teaching them the skills they need to survive in IT, build software, you know, instead of going year 11, year 12, first year uni, second year uni, third year uni. Um, so I think... For me, it's about scale. I, 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 my metric would be how many happy seats do we have? How many software engineers, BAs, team leads do we have who are actually enjoying their job? So that's really my, my personal goal over the next 20 years is to find a way to make this happen at scale somehow. I don't care who owns it. I don't care who makes it happen. But I would like to see instead of 30 to 50 people doing this, I would like to see, you know, tens of thousands of people doing it this way. And why? Because you wake up on Monday morning, you want to go to work. It's as simple as that, right? There's, you know, um, purpose is very motivating, creates motivation, you get happy. People who are happy tend to be less mentally ill. Like it's just a simple me metric, right? So for me, I, I and I'm frustrated by my lack of ability because I'm not from a marketing background. I'm not from a, I'm just a techie that likes to deliver, deliver projects. Um, I tried to convince Paul to do that for me because he's had experience in, uh, or for us, I should say, not for me. Um, but, you know, he's busy at the moment, so it'll, it'll be a few years, I think, yet before. <laughs> he's done something similar with some intellectual property from a previous thing in UAE. Um, yeah. And it lends itself to this. So, you know, like a certification program, uh, whatever. Um, don't care if it's charity or not. Don't care if we make any money out of it. I just want to see happy people in IT. And it's so easy. Um, One of the fun parts in the book I read was Paul had mentioned that while he was riding horses uh, in the childhood, he learned how to become more compassionate and responsible. Um, I know this is out of this topic, but wanted to understand how does uh, those two things link? Uh, I know people are close to dogs, uh, cats. You were close to horses. That's a new passion. <laughs> well, I, I grew up on a farm, um, Sarab, so I was surrounded by animals. Um, or I grew up right next to a farm and was surrounded by animals and spent a lot of time in the farmyard. But um, and my, my family have got a history with um, uh, horse racing. So... so um, I was kind of thrown in or was given the opportunity, I should say, um, to, to learn to ride very young and, and spend a lot of time with horses. But it taught me a lot of things um, because my father's attitude, my mother's attitude was, if you want to do horse riding, that's fine, but you're going to have to look after it and it's your responsibility. So for an eight-year-old, you know, that was quite a daunting task because, um, you know, I had to basically tend to the horse before I went to school in the mornings and look after it when I got home. So um, so I very quickly learned um, the importance of taking responsibility for things and, and the kind of um, patience and respect thing really sort of came out of having a series of quite difficult horses <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the, where it was a case of, you know, if you can't work out a way to... to um, communicate and um collaborate with this beast you're going to end up with a 
you know, horse's hoof in your head. Um, so, so it was really just, um, it was a, it was a very long learning process. You know, I, I've, you know, I've been involved in horses all my life, but, um, and still learning. Um, but it kind of taught me the, the importance of being prepared to take time to understand people and how they tick and what they find simple and what they find difficult and how you can help them. Um, so yeah, horses have, uh, have provided me with a, an unexpected way to learn, um, which, uh, which hopefully is you know, something I can, I can pass on. Well, um, just for the listeners who might not know about this, that Paul and I are actually working in the same team Monday to Friday. And now I can understand <laughs> where all that compassion is coming from. It's all embedded <laughs> in his childhood. <laughs> totally. I horse yes. story, so I, I, I can demonstrate to you what happens when you <laughs> don't communicate with a horse. <laughs> you fall off the horse and you splinter your little finger into lots of little pieces. I often wondered, Andrew, why we needed something that doesn't have an on-off button and a handbrake. Yeah. I just, what is their purpose? Uh, I love, I do love horses, George. I also like cars, but, uh, I love horses, but, uh, you know, when you're learning to communicate with a horse, it turns out you can make some mistakes. It's actually interesting, Paul, that you, there's a couple of things in our history that there's some similarities. Um so I think you know I, I, I train salespeople and have done for many years. Mm. And I, I created something which I call Step Away Salesman. And it actually came my, um, when I, in my uh, 20s, 30s, friends of the family had a farm up at Cudell uh, uh, up near Orange. And there's, they had all sorts of things, including the horses, which I've never been comfortable around, um, which re goes back to a childhood uh, uh, horse accident that um, took me a while to work out why that was triggering things. But I've been trying to round up these damned horses and do you think I could get them to do any damn thing? And then <laughs> I noticed, I it was just something that I noticed that as I moved away, they actually came towards me. And yep. so I, 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 was, um, I was probably... Middle middle twenties, and I was, I was I was starting to teach people in sales even then, and so I came up with this concept of think of a horse. If you've got the carrot and you keep going after them, they want to go away, and so it's interesting, Paul, that you you can. And, and for anyone listening to this, if you're observant, if you actually understand where you are and what's going on, you'll be amazed the lessons you can get from one area and just take it into something totally random and, and yeah, from that I, that day forward i created what i call the step away salesman and um it, it's been a very successful technique that i've used for many many years since so i do have some liking of horses very good 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 I'd well like if, to if you um some learnings from my uh, last tax return and apply them anywhere else in your life <laughs> <laughs> excellent <laughs> sorry Okay. Well, no, I didn't mean to trivialise what you're saying. So. No. no, that's okay. We all um, agree. Yeah. Well, well, thank you so much, Paul uh, and Andrew. I understand that uh, we've got limited time for today. Uh, we would love to have you for three or four more hours because, you know, we can have endless <laughs> questions, but uh, we are mindful of the time. 
Um, and thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate that. It was a very, very fascinating session to know that this concept can not only be applied in IT, but it can be applied across different domains and how you have actually come up with this idea. I'm sure the listeners will understand more about that. And maybe some future uh, book authors might also understand how difficult and what kind of goes into the process of writing a book through your own experiences um, and you know how you kind of met each other. So those experiences, I think, really matter a lot to listeners uh, who are listening to it for the first time, especially for people like me. Um, I, I would love to do something like something of this sort um, 20 years down the line. So it's a good idea that you have given me, uh, which I'm definitely going to think about uh, after this episode. I'm sure many more youngsters and people will be thinking about that. Um, and we had invited, by the way, with the horse incident, we had invited somebody called um, uh, a lady from the Be Kinder Foundation in an episode of Charities. Um, she lost her daughter, 12-year-old daughter, in a horse riding, as a horse riding accident in Australia. So it can be pretty miserable at times um, that you can also uh, lose a life in that way. But anyways, thank you so much, Paul. Thank you so much, Andrew. Any final comments before we um, Before we go, how are our um, supporters going to find this book and how do they go about getting it? I'll make Good sure question, George. I'll, I'll make sure that yeah, I drop uh, in the comment section. Yeah, do, uh, Sarab. So it's it's um, it's available on Amazon and Booktopia and I think Waterstones. I think they're most of the online bookstores you can uh, you can get hold of a copy this is an ultimate global podcast hello and welcome to our special weekly podcast on trending international and social affairs you're listening to Saurabh Kora and George Mavros from Sydney